Good morning. And happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mommies, mama, mom, mother, whatever your kids call you or some combination of those. I want to just start this morning by emphasizing the incredible influence of a mother. I think most of us who are here would be able to say, in some respects, that our mothers had a great deal of influence on our worldview, on how we understand the deep truths of life, on how we understand and approach God. So I want to just start by reading to you a quote from a man by the name of Harvey Goodwin, and he was the Bishop of Carlisle in England at the end of the 19th century, from 1869 to 91. And this is what he said. Maybe you can relate to this in your own life. He said, I am one of those who lost their mothers at a very early age. That's not the part that I was saying you maybe could relate to, but maybe that is the case. I was very little, over six years old, when my dear mother was suddenly taken from me. Now then... When I look back to the teaching of my mother, what do I think of? I say deliberately and without any amount of exaggeration that though I have since that time been at school, been under tutors, been at college, and had all the experience of life, I do not believe that all the lessons that I have received since that time put together amount in value and in importance to the lessons which I learned from my my mother before I was seven years old. It's incredible just the influence she had in his life before she died when he was just still a small child. So this is what I want to start by saying. In the midst of all the stress that you experience as a mom, As a mother, as a mommy, maybe of little ones, and some of you have a handful of kids. We have only two, but I know that it's intense. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that the hardest job in the world belongs to a mother with children under the age of five. And I've experienced that, not as a mother, but I've experienced that as I've watched my wife with our two children. And so in the midst of all the stress that you experience as a mom, I think it's important that you be reminded of the powerful impact that you are making in those mundane moments, in those little words of correction and affection, and in all of that, the powerful impact that you're having on your kids in the midst of all that stress. So it's worth it. It's valuable. It's important. And as we reflect on the valuable things that a mother can teach her children, I think there are probably few things more important than the attributes of God. As a mother is raising her children, catechizing, teaching, instructing, doing all of these things in the lives of her children, there are few things that she could begin with that would be more significant than the attributes of God. And one of those attributes we saw at the very beginning of our study of Titus, which was the series we did just before this. And it's been amazing to me, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, all the ways that the Sermon on the Mount kind of, kind of connects to the content of Titus. But it was at the very beginning of that book, in chapter 1, verse 2, 
that we got this very passing phrase which gave us a significant attribute of our God. And it said this about him. He is the never lying God. He always speaks the truth. He does not lie. We, we learn elsewhere he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is trustworthy. He never lies. And so when we come to a passage like Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, in the Sermon on the Mount, which centers on the idea of speaking the truth, I think we are reminded that this is what we are to do and who we are to be because of who our Heavenly Father is. And at the end of the day, that's that everything that we find in the Sermon on the Mount connects back to that. Because remember what Jesus will say. He'll say that you let your deeds be seen by others that they might, on account of those deeds, glorify your Father in heaven. And we also hear Jesus saying, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So as those who belong to the Father, we are to manifest the characteristics of the Father. And one of those characteristics, one of those attributes of God is that he does not lie. And we come to this passage that we're going to look at today and we realize that our speaking the truth is really a participation in the life of God as the one who himself is truth. The one who himself never and in fact cannot lie. So that's the title for the sermon this morning, Speaking the Truth. And we are going to Matthew 5, verse 33 to 37. If you'll go there in your Bible, that's where we will be today. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, starting at um, chapter 5, verse 1, going to the end of chapter 7. So we have still quite a bit to go. But we're in this section, which basically is verses <clears throat> 21 to 48 of chapter 5. That's the section that we've been, that's the section we've been in now for uh, quite some time, or at least for, for uh, a few weeks. So chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. And this is what God's word says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. One of the things that has struck me as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, is the extent to which this passage is familiar to us and yet the extent to which we just don't get it. We don't understand it. There's a lot of difficult passages. In fact, all through the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of passages that are kind of hard to interpret, especially as Jesus is responding to the interpretation of the Old Testament law and he's kind of coming out of that, the Old Testament law itself, the misinterpretation or misapplication of that by those in his day. And as he's responding to that, this is what you've heard has been said. This is what I say to you, and then he goes and tells us what the real meaning of the law is and what true righteousness is and what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. And as he's doing this, it's not always easy to kind of de determine and discern what's going on in these verses. So I would just say that while the Sermon on the Mount is so familiar to us, I think it's probably one of the passages in the Bible that is frequently the least understood, including today a passage like 
we have before us. So let's pray, all the more reason to pray and pray and pray and ask for God's help. Uh, help us to understand his word, help us to apply his word to our lives and, and that the spirit will give us the strength that we need in order to do that. Let's pray. <coughs> our merciful God, we, pr <coughs> we praise you today that you hear us when we pray. We praise you today because you have brought us once again to your people to worship together with your church. We thank you today that we can so quickly and so easily open up your word and read from your holy book, from that which is a written revelation of your will for mankind. We thank you, Father, that we have in this place this morning true brothers and sisters, people whom you've placed in our lives, people whom you've given to us as a gift, even as you describe uh, those in the church as gifts, and each of us is a gift to one another, Lord, as we bear one another's burdens, as we help one another, as we love one another. And so, God, would we, just, we, would, would we not be here this morning for a period of time just to come and sit and participate and listen and then leave? But, God, would our minds be truly bent towards community? And community not for its own sake in this kind of general idea, but, Lord, community as one who belongs to your son and one who has been made part of a family. God, would you help us today to be a family as we as we listen together and learn together and grow together and, and sharpen one another, even after the service, God, would, and, and throughout Gospel Community Group this week, as the deep sheet is, is worked with and as, as the, the, the text for the sermon today is, is engaged with by leaders and by those in the groups, Father, would you just bless all of this to bring your people closer together here at Four Corners and to bring us all closer to your Son. God, we also pray today for your help with this passage, we pray that you will bless this preaching of your word and hearing of your word. We pray that your spirit will be active among us today because we know, God, that apart from his workings, we have nothing. We have no hope. We have no strength. We have no power, no resolve, no motivation, no discipline, nothing apart from him. And so, God, today would we put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit and would, would we be attentive to what you're doing and saying through your word. God, would you bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So speaking the truth, Matthew 5, 33 to 37, if you go ahead and put up that slide, there are basically three things that we need to see as we walk through this passage. First, there's the deceptive practice that is going on at the time of Jesus. This is the deceptive practice in the background. This is the cultural condition. This is the state of Judaism, so to speak, in Palestine at this time as Jesus is giving this sermon. This is what's going on in the background. Secondly, we have the straightforward truth. This is the point of what Jesus has to say in response to these misinterpretations and misapplications of the religious leaders and teachers of his day. And then finally, we need to see the diabolical origin of all of this which Jesus is refuting. In other words, what Jesus will hold out for us as righteousness, everything else has a diabolical origin. And we'll talk about that when we get to that point. So, what is Jesus doing 
in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. As we come to this first point, the deceptive practice. What is Jesus doing at this point in this sermon? As the authoritative king, he is explaining to his disciples the true, deep intention of God's revelation up to that point of God's holy law. The, the law is holy and righteous and good, Paul will say in Romans 7. The law is not to be thrown out, thrown into the trash by Jesus. The law is holy and righteous and good. He came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And Jesus, as the the Christ, which the law pointed towards, and as the king of this new kingdom, of those uh, upon whose heart the law of God is written, this Jesus has come to explicate or to fully unfold and explain God's law to his people. And he is calling, in the process of doing this, he is calling for a heart righteousness, which he will provide by his spirit. At this point, the disciples really uh, are, are sitting there trying to take this in. They're living in this, in this time where we see Pharisaic religion, a legalistic kind of religion based on externals. And what Jesus will do by the giving of his spirit, as we read in Acts 2, that when Jesus ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he will pour out his spirit. The promised Holy Spirit given to the Son is then poured out on his disciples at Pentecost. And it is there that the Holy Spirit begins as the spirit of the risen, glorified Jesus to live in the hearts of God's people and to write God's law on those hearts. And so Jesus holds out for his people a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what we got in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. A righteousness of the heart, a deep righteousness, a true righteousness. So murder And adultery, as we looked at recently, are not merely about the act, but about the heart. We've talked about that. Divorce was never part of God's intentions for human beings when he created them. These are the topics we've covered so far, but today we come to a different topic. And as I've said before, these, all of these individual topics are examples or illustrations of the main point which I just stated that Jesus brought out in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, and that is that the law has not been abolished. He is the fulfillment of it, and he comes to bring a righteousness that surpasses that of the day, that which was held up in that day as righteousness, the activity of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus has come to tear this apart and uphold the true meaning of God's law. So today we come to another topic, and the topic is swearing an oath. So Jesus begins with the word on the street as we have in verse 33. So look there. This is the traditional interpretation of God's law that is put forward by the scribes and Pharisees. This is what's in the air. This is how people are thinking about these oaths, this idea of giving an oath. This is what's on the minds of people as they have listened to uh, the law of God explained in the synagogue, as they have heard the teachers of the law explain what it means to be faithful to God in this regard. And so verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is not the easiest passage to kind of pull apart because there are various strands of Old Testament teaching that are kind of moving into this section that, are, that lie behind what we find here in this statement that Jesus gives. But the main two Ideas or the main two teachings of the law that lie behind all of this 
are the swearing of, of an oath and not taking the Lord's name in vain, the third commandment. These are the two ideas that have been woven together essentially and that lie behind what we find here in this teaching by the scribes and Pharisees about giving an oath or taking an oath. So first, there is the, there is the practice of swearing an oath. So what is an oath? A solemn declaration that you are speaking the truth. And as you give that declaration that what I am saying is truth, you, you call down God, as it were, as a witness. And so you say, I declare that I am speaking the truth. And you call down God as someone who can affirm what it is you're saying. And in doing so, you are essentially saying, let God judge me if I'm lying. Let God stand over me in judgment and condemnation if what I am saying is not true. Essentially, that is what it means to swear an oath, which lies behind what we have here. And this was very common in the Old Testament. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, we read this. <clears throat> it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear and that is as opposed to swearing by other gods. Now notice this about the context of swearing. Swearing to God or by God's name, swearing by God's name is put in the context of fearing God and serving God. And if you read Deuteronomy 6, it's in the context of them saying, look, don't do this in the names of other gods. So you don't fear these other so-called gods. You don't serve these other so-called gods. And you don't swear in the name of these other so-called gods. You fear the Lord, serve the Lord, and you swear only in his name. In other words, in all of your goings and doings, you are a possession of Yahweh, your possession of the Lord. So that's the context for what's going on in that passage, but it does say there, by his name you shall swear. So this idea of swearing an oath. The second idea that we have lying behind this is the third commandment, as I said before, and we read that in Exodus 27. It says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name, <coughs> excuse me, in vain. And so these two ideas, these two ideas that are the background for what we find in verse 33, these two ideas of swearing falsely and not taking the Lord's name in vain come together, I think, really well in a passage from Leviticus. So we look at Leviticus 19.12, and this is what it says. You shall not swear. See how it brings the two ideas together. You shall not swear by my name falsely. So the idea of swearing, not falsely, and the idea of not taking the Lord's name in vain come together or intersect, really, in Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Okay. So, that's kind of the Old Testament background for what we find these scribes and Pharisees teaching at the time of Jesus. And, and hence Jesus' response in this passage. So, in light of these passages from the law... What is it that the religious leaders are doing? How are they twisting God's truth? How are they misinterpreting and misapplying what I've just read? Or mispulling it together, we could say. 
Well, here's what was going on with those guys. Because they did not technically want to take God's name in vain, they did not want to do that. They knew that the commandment was, was strictly prohibited that. So because they did not want to do that, they simply removed his name from any oath. Now here's the irony of it. The only references that we get to this idea of swearing an oath are to be sworn in the name of Yahweh. And it is situated in context that say you're doing this as opposed to swearing in the name of these other gods. And so what these scribes and Pharisees came along and did is because they did not want to to take the Lord's name in vain. They just simply took his name out of the oath altogether. And they set that aside. We can't say that name. We don't want to say that name in vain. So we'll just take that right off to the side. (coughs) Listen to this craftiness. Then, these guys had a lot of time on their hands. (laughs) They just needed a job. They just needed something to do. So then, they determined which words or objects could be used in place of or substituted for God's name in order to make an oath binding. So they they decide, okay, the holy name of God, Yahweh, as it's pronounced, we'll we'll take that name and put it aside so that we don't say the Lord's name in vain. We're going to haul in a lot of other ideas or words, objects that will connote God's name. And what, what that will mean is that we will not take God's name in vain. These will be nice substitutes or replacements for the name of God. And we can avoid that altogether. So that's what they were doing. But that's not all. Here's the deception. Here's why I've called this the deceptive practice. If an oath, this is craziness, if an oath did not have the right introductory formula, if it didn't have the right substitute words, then it technically was not binding. It was irrelevant. It was rendered unmeaningful. So they could swear by something that was not a substitute for God and therefore they were not swearing before God. They were not swearing unto God and it therefore was not binding. The oath that was sworn in such cases was not done to God. It was not done before his face, so to speak. And the person who made the oath was therefore not obligated to keep it. That's incredible. These were the religious leaders of that time. These were the people who held out before the other people, the common people of Israel. These were those Malachi talks about. These were the kinds of of unrighteous shepherds. The people who were supposed to shepherd God's people to righteousness and holiness, to keeping his law, not to defaming his law. These are the people who are turning everyone away from the truth with their deception. And here's the result. In their self-righteous, deceptive minds, here's the result. They were able to maintain law-keeping. How? How were these guys able to maintain law-keeping in their own mind? Well, they didn't technically use the Lord's name in vain. So there's that part. And they did not swear falsely to the Lord. Because they said an oath, they made an oath without using the Lord's name. And so his name was not held, his name was not taken in vain, and they did not swear it unto him because it was not a fair substitute, and therefore they did not sin. That's the way that these guys are thinking about righteousness, all the while lying to their neighbor. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two things love the Lord your God, 
with your whole self <coughs> and love your neighbor as yourself. And clearly, these scribes and Pharisees are not doing the latter. This is their deceptive practice. And so at this point, you're thinking, okay, this, is, this all sounds a little a little strange. Where are we getting this from? Well, there's a, there are a number of rabbinical documents that, that actually discuss these things. In fact, there's quite a bit of material on oaths, on taking an oath. And they go through all the rules for taking an oath. You do this, you do that. It's binding here. It's not binding there. And they would get in these, these debates where they would try to figure out when an oath was binding and when an oath was not binding. And they would go through back and forth in these discussions. But we get a little glimpse into this behind the scenes discussion between scribes and Pharisees. We get a little glimpse into this in Matthew 23. So I want to read this to you. Matthew 23, starting in verse 16. This is Jesus rebuking. We've read this entire chapter when we started uh, with the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. When, when we came to that, that passage in verse 20 of this chapter, we read through Matthew 23 just to give you a bit of a taste for these scribes and Pharisees whom Jesus is always running up against. But here's what he says about this whole business of oaths. Verse 20, verse 16. <coughs> Woe to you, blind guides, who say, now listen to this, this is what the scribes and Pharisees are saying. If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. Doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's vapor. It's air. It doesn't mean anything. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. He must keep it. You blind fools, Jesus says. For which is greater, the gold or the, the, gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say... Here's another example. If anyone swears by the altar, that is nothing. Doesn't matter. He doesn't have to keep it, not bound by it. It, 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 it does not, you don't owe anything to your neighbor if you swear by, by this. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. He must keep it. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And that will get to what Jesus says in a moment. But before we get to Jesus' response, I want to draw your attention to an application that is made by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And here it is. It is really easy for us when we're reading through the Gospels, especially at a time like this or when we encounter Matthew 23, it is very easy for us to look at these scribes and Pharisees as a bunch of strange, distant, ancient, legalistic hypocrites who twist the scriptures, dishonor God, and hate their neighbor. It's very easy for us to do that. And in fact, all those things are true. <laughs> I mean, that was the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus made that clear throughout the Gospels. As a whole, on the whole, we see men like Joseph of Arimathea. We see men like Nicodemus who are, are, are hearing Jesus. And God is pulling them, calling them to himself. And they're beginning to respond to Jesus. And I believe by the end of the Gospel that these are men who, who, who love the Lord Jesus. They, they've begun to follow him. But on the whole, these men hate the truth. 
and they despise God's revelation. They're filled with pride and they hate God's son. Remember the parables Jesus told about how his son would be sent and what would they ultimately do to the son? The servants would be beaten, but what would they do to the son? They would kill him. Ah, this is the son. Let's take him and kill him. That was the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees on the whole, but not all. So it's easy for us to look back on these guys, point our finger at them and say, look how awful these guys were. But I want you to think about how often we exhibit these very same characteristics. There's a whole host of characteristics that we could point to about the scribes and Pharisees. But I want to draw your attention to a quote by Lloyd-Jones that I think captures one aspect of it. He says this, What we do is to isolate a certain thing and say, to do that is sin. And as long as you are not doing it, all is well. All is well. So maybe that's you. It's all of us, really, at the end of the day. But maybe that's going on right now, actively, even consciously in your life. You've, you've got these things that you've boxed up and you've put over here. So for the scribes, going back to last week and the Pharisees, as long as they wrote a certificate of divorce, as long as they were, were, were tedious about that process, they made sure that that was given and it was given in the right way. They checked all the boxes according to the law, Deuteronomy 24. They made sure they did all of that. As long as they did that, they were good. It didn't matter what God had to say about the nature of marriage or what God had to say about what it means to love a wife or what the husband and wife are and what that means before God. It's irrelevant because they're not doing, they're not breaking this commandment. They've checked that box. And here again we see the same. As long as they don't use the Lord's name in vain, they're okay. They're okay to deceive Okay to lie, okay to hate their neighbor. So how often do we do that? We box up all of the things that we are not supposed to do. We look at that nice little tidy box and we say, I don't do any of those things. And we begin even subconsciously to walk around as though we're these great law keepers. We're these great followers of God. All the while we have this deep rooted sin in our lives that we're not being attentive to. That we're not, we're not even looking at some of the implications of these things and how these things that we've boxed up and isolated from all other areas of life, how these things are interrelated with all of this that we're doing. But as long as we're not doing that, we're good. We're doing it. We're living it. Living the Christian life. Lloyd-Jones calls this the tragedy of the modern view of holiness. And I think in some respects we see this in certain traditions among evangelicals. We see this this notion that there is a short list of to-dos and there is a short list of not-to-dos. And as long as those to-dos and those not-to-dos are right, you're good. All the while. All the while. Filled with all kinds of sin. One of the things that I think is most illustrative of this is the rampant racism that existed in the South among fundamentalist evangelical Christians. 
Christians who held to a, a, a very, a very staunch, staunchly held to a very healthy and good doctrine of Scripture and believed the virgin birth and the literal physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and the inerrancy of Scripture and this and that, checked all these boxes, but treated their fellow man in ways that were appalling culturally. Not all. But we saw this kind of duplicity. That is the Pharisaic mindset that can take root in any person, even in a Christian. Even in a Christian who has the Holy Spirit. Even in a Christian who has God's law written on the heart. Because we carry around our flesh, which must be daily crucified, which must be daily put to death. And when we don't daily put it to death, when we sow to the flesh rather than the spirit, then the flesh wages war against the spirit, Galatians 5, and it takes over. And we begin to manifest the same kind of life that we lived before we met Jesus. The opposite of all of this is to live before the face of God with every word and every deed in his presence, quorum Deo, before his eyes as he sees us and hears us every second of every day. That is what it means to commune with God, to follow him. So this leads us to the next thing that I I want you to see this morning and that is the straightforward truth. We see what's going on in the background. We see what's going on in Jesus' day and what he's going to be coming up against and what he's going to be responding to. So what does Jesus have to say? Jesus' response to this twisted and deceptive teaching of the law takes two major forms. First, and on the surface, there is this straightforward, there is this call for straightforward truth. We find that in verse 34. Look there. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And then a little later in the passage, verse 37, he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. And if we're going to get this, if we're going to understand what's going on here and how we are to apply what Jesus is saying, we have to understand what oaths were always meant to be in the Old Testament. This is very important. An oath in the Old Testament was always meant to support the cause of truth. Think about that for a moment. By its very, we know that intuitively in our culture, that an oath is meant to serve truth. It, it seeks to serve the truth in every area of life. That is what an oath is for. Not to undermine the truth. To support the truth, not to undermine it. We see this in Hebrews 6. It says this, <clears throat> For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So the idea, as human beings are are, are working together and trying to sort of build community and society, that these oaths have a way of bringing people together, settling disputes, and bringing a kind of finality to the interactions and the speech of human beings. An oath settles a matter. It has an important function in confirming truth and even this, in upholding the value of truth. Think about that. The very presence of an oath tells us that truth means something. The very presence of an oath tells us that truth matters, that it should not be trifled with, that it is not a trivial thing, that truth is important to God. So the fact that there even is an oath 
makes that perfectly clear. So an oath is not intrinsically bad. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see the people of God in the Old Testament making various oaths to uh, oaths in various contexts all throughout. We see God himself making an oath. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, which I just read to you, we have, that's in the New Testament, we have God, we have the, the writer explaining how God made an oath in the Old Testament and conf- that he confirmed his word with an oath. And he could swear by nothing higher than himself, so he swore by himself. Jesus responds under oath to Caiaphas in Matthew 26. So if we're going to take this as a strict barring of all oaths, read Matthew 26. Jesus is before Caiaphas. He's entering into his passion. (coughs) He has entered into his passion. He is before the, the high priest, and the high priest, everyone's asking questions, and everyone is throwing around accusations. Jesus, as a lamb brought to the slaughter, said nothing. He was silent before his shearers, as we read in Isaiah 53, fulfilling prophecy. But when the high priest said, I adjure you under oath, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. He was silent until that point, but he responded under oath, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And then, of course, Paul makes various oaths throughout the New Testament. Listen to just a little sampling of Paul's language. So 2 Corinthians 1.23, but I call God to witness against me. Uh, That's an oath. That's swearing. I mean, swearing not in the way we tend to think about it, but I call God to witness against me. Galatians 1.20, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie, he says to them. 1 Thessalonians 5, 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Romans 9, 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. These are examples of the Apostle Paul swearing an oath. And we see Jesus under oath, as I said before, Matthew, under an oath in Matthew 26. And of course, we use oaths in a court of law. Some do not. Anabaptists, Quakers do not. Uh, On account of this passage, what I would would regard to be a misinterpretation of this passage, a, a pious misinterpretation of this passage, but a misinterpretation nonetheless. We give oaths in court and even in our marriage vows. Our marriage vows are a kind of oath that that we are making to one another in the sight of God. As God is the witness to this vowing to one another, we make that in the presence of God. The problem with the Pharisees is that the oath was being used as a tool to get around the truth rather than to uphold the truth. That's the fundamental problem that we must have in the background in order to understand what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. So as D.A. Carson puts it, if men will play such games with oaths, Jesus will simply abolish oaths. 
He is interested in truthfulness, its constancy and absoluteness. So that's the first aspect of Jesus' teaching in response to the scribes and Pharisees is this idea of straightforward truth. We'll talk about that more in a moment, but let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Do not swear oaths. And I'll say this too. This has to do with personal interactions of everyday speech. And we know this because of the context as you get these swearing by heaven and by earth and so forth. These This is the context of just interrelationships of human beings. And insofar as you're in relationship with human beings, taking oaths to one another should not be a part of life. So that's the first aspect of what Jesus is saying, the first aspect of his response. The second aspect concerns heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and the head of the person swearing an oath. So look at verses 34 to 36. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So what is going on here? Well, it's important to know that such oaths made by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your own head, such oaths oaths were not considered binding by the scribes and Pharisees. So remember we talked about this, that they had set up these substitutes and as long as you used those substitutes, then you were swearing in the sight of God and it, it, you, you could swear falsely to God. But if it wasn't one of those substitutes, it didn't matter. You could just swear by it and it had no consequence. It was not as the scribes would say. It was, it was nothing. It was not binding. So all of these fit into that Category, But here's what Jesus makes clear. Jesus says that all of these things, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, the city, the, the key city of the people of God, the head, the hair on the head of any individual, all of these things and everything for that matter has reference back to God. He owns it all. He controls it all. So you cannot say... I'm going to technically not swear by God's name. I'm going to swear by this thing that is under God's domain, that is under his control. So you cannot essentially swear in any way, shape, or form and it not have reference to God because he owns everything. He's the king. And he's the only one who has the power over one's hair color even. He controls it all. Some people, uh, this is just a funny little side note, some people uh, would, will, would even go to a passage like this to say that you should not dye your hair. There is craziness in how people interpret the Bible. Much craziness in how people go about reading God's word. And we all can fall into it too. But I hope no one will take away that application from the sermon this morning. Or many of you have already taken, many of you have already gone against that. So, I'm not, I mean, I don't have anyone, I don't have anyone particular in mind, I'm just saying. So, to give our word on anything (coughs) is ultimately to call God as a witness. 
Anytime we speak, we are calling God as a witness since everything has reference to him and every word is accountable to him. Listen to these words from Matthew 12, verse 36. This is incredibly heavy. If you read these and think about the truth of them, listen to this, what Jesus says. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every single vain word. Now for those of us who belong to Christ, he gave an account for our words and our deeds and our evil attitudes. Jesus took that upon himself at the cross for our sins. He died there for sins like this that we would not have to die forever, separation from God in hell. And ultimately, every time we come to something like this in the Sermon on the Mount, we're immediately driven to the cross because at every stage in the Sermon on the Mount, we find our unrighteousness. We find our lack of ability to obey God in this way. We find that we do not measure up to God's law. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that while we don't measure up to God's law, Christ does. And God sent him to actively be righteousness for us. He obeyed God in every respect perfectly. He loved God's law. He meditated on it day and night. He delighted in the law of the Lord and then he bore the curse of it on the tree so that we would not have to. That is the gospel. And every moment as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, every moment, everything we read, we should be reminded of that glorious truth. That the only reason that we will not give an account for every foolish thing we've ever said and be thrown cast, that's the language in the Bible, thrown cast into hell is because of Christ's penal substitutionary atonement. His taking our punishment upon himself in our place at the cross. That's the only reason that you and I won't be in hell if you're a Christian and give an account on the day of judgment for all of our foolish words. So how do we apply all of this to ourselves? How do we think about Jesus' teaching as it relates to real life? I think the first question is this. Does your yes or no mean anything? Really? <coughs> or do you constantly have to rise to a higher level by using an oath? I mean, think about it. Do people, when they hear you speak, do they think, okay, he said yes. He means yes. He said no. She means no. Or do they seek something further? This, is, this has been understood by a number of people. Philo, who was uh, an ancient Jew around this time, a, a, a Jew in, um, in Alexandria, Philo said this, for the mere fact of his swearing, listen to this, I like this quote, for the mere fact of his swearing casts suspicion on the trustworthiness of the man. In other words, the fact that the man has to swear casts suspicion on the fact that when he's not swearing, he's not telling you the truth. He has to give you a swear, I swear to God, or whatever one might say. He has to do that in order for you to know, I'm serious now. Now I'm telling you something. Before, I, maybe you trust me, maybe you couldn't. But now I am speaking the truth. And so let me ask this, how much of this kind of raw honesty 
would affect, how much would this kind of honesty affect your family life, affect your relationship with your kids? I was even convicted this week on something tiny, like, I mean, it's not tiny, it's not tiny, but I'm convicted this week on just, if I tell Jennifer that I'm going to be home at, you know, 6, and I'm home at 6.15 or 6.20, it's a kind of not being faithful to my word. It's a kind of saying, when, when Lonnie says that he will be home at 6, he's home at 6. When, when daddy says he's going to jump on the trampoline with me, he jumps on the trampoline with me, whatever the case might be. I'm just using some examples from my own life. But whatever it is for you that when you speak, when you say words, they are, they are meaningful. They are not just vaporous, uh, meaningless things that float away into the clouds like a balloon. But they have substance to them. What about in your marriage? What about in church? I mean, how much of church is just a big pretension? How much of church is just a big mask? Everybody gets their, takes their mask out of the back seat when they pull up, put that thing on, walk through the church building doors and sort of play church. Nice smile, all that. Go home, take that thing off, throw that thing back in the back seat, and you go on with life. Then you put it back on the next time you're with God's people. How much of that do we actually do? Are you the same person here on Sunday morning in every respect as you are at home? as you are at work and everywhere else. I think Jesus' words here call us to ask these kinds of questions. And I think it all boils down to this. Are you mindful of the eyes and ears of the Lord our God? Are you mindful of his watching eyes? Not a single area of our lives is apart from him or without reference to him. Everything belongs to the Lord. As we finish up this morning, I want to draw attention to this very last clause at the end of verse 37. As we come to the final point, the diabolical origin. At the end of verse 37, look there, we read this. (coughs) Anything more than this comes from evil. Anything more than this comes from evil. It is probably best to translate this as from the evil one. As we read in the Lord's Prayer, oftentimes it will be said, and you'll find this in a note, uh, as a note in your Bible, deliver us from the evil one. And it's probably best to, to take, a, take this in this way, from the evil one, which reminds us that all deception, everything that cannot be defined, hear this, everything that cannot be defined as straightforward truth is ultimately from Satan. That's an incredible thought, probably that you've, maybe it's, it's come in your mind, but it's, it's gone away. That's a heavy idea attached to something which we could read past and think, okay, yeah, that's, that's important, sort of. I mean, the adultery one, that was pretty important. Murder, pretty important. But this one, I mean, I, I don't know. We just kind of go over this thing. What's he even talking about? And we just sort of move on. But this little, this little clause at the end causes us to stop, read it again, and think about the significance of what Jesus is saying. Jesus will tell these religious leaders in John 8, this. Listen, you are of your father, the devil, he tells these guys. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand, listen to this, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Satan is entirely devoid of truth. 
He is at the core nothing but lies. He is nothing but deception. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, listen to this. He speaks out of his own character. He is by nature liar. He is liar. Intrinsically, he is liar. He does not lie. He is liar. Do you hear that? For he is a liar and the father of lies. We know this from Genesis 3, 4. You will not surely die. Every time we go to a funeral and every time we see man's wicked rebellion against God, we are reminded of the fact that Satan lied to Eve in Genesis 3, 4. We do die. All of us in this room will die physically. And those of us in this room who do not know Jesus Christ will die eternally apart from God's presence. Satan is a liar. He lied to Eve and he lies to us every day. Maybe he's lying to you right now. He's always working, moving about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as First Peter describes it. I have said before, as we close this morning, that our view of Satan and his activity is often highly skewed. And this may come from just the way that the devil and the diabolical, uh, the devilish and demonic is portrayed on TV or in various shows or in movies, the way Hollywood portrays demonic possession and the work of the devil. Uh, I, I know that this, this kind of confuses us and it gives us images. When we think about the devil, we tend to, to cast him in the mold of that Hollywood or whoever has given us. And so our understanding of who Satan is and what he does is greatly skewed. And here's one of the main ways that it's skewed. We see him only in the big things. September the 11th, the devil. Terrorist attack somewhere else, the devil. Awful murder of so-and-so we read about in the news, the devil. And that's the great deception of the devil he wants us to see him only in these big outlandish acts of evil that mankind does. But here's what we need to be reminded of this morning. I want to leave us with this idea. In all of our exaggerations, hear this, people of God, hear this. In all of our exaggerations, pretensions, dishonesty, white lies, and misleading and unclear speech, the devil and his schemes are present. And what comes with the devil? Sin. And what comes with sin? Death. Where there is sin, there is death. The deterioration of every relationship in our lives. The deterioration of every local church. The deterioration of every marriage. The deterioration of every parent-child relationship. Satan is moving and working and he loves for you to think that he's only present in this major event that happened in the Middle East or somewhere else. He's present in your heart and in my heart when he very subtly massages us into deception. All of this is from the evil one. Proverbs ten nineteen says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains, restrains his lips Lips is prudent. Maybe that's a good place to start. Yes? Yes. Means yes. No? Means no. And when you speak, it matters. Let's pray.
our sovereign king, we thank you, God, that you are here with us this morning, that we are before your face, that we are before your eyes, that we are before your ears. God, would our words be few? Would they be true? Would they be true? God, help us. Apart from your mercy, we can do nothing. So like the repentant and later justified publican, tax collector, who came to the temple and beat his chest, not even looking to heaven, saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We come. We desire, God, that you will be merciful to us in Jesus Christ for his sake. And we pray, God, that if there are those who are among us today who are not converted Christians, who do not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, who have not trusted, as Paul says at the end of Romans 4, in his resurrection from the dead, who have not confessed him as Lord and believed in his or her heart that you, God, raised him from the dead, our prayer today is that Jesus might bring them to himself. God, we know that our prayers in that regard matter. And so, Lord, we ask for it. We ask for conversions, true conversions of those maybe among us who are not Christians. God, we ask for all of us that you will convert us more and more towards your son to live quorum Deo before your face always, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.